Morning. Morning. Happy Sabbath. All right, we're just going to start. We have a little bit extra today, so we'll, I want you to sing with me. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Father, praise and honor and glory be to you, King of the universe. Great is your faithfulness. Father, we thank you because you have promised you will return soon and there will be no more death, sorrow, crying, and pain. Lord, until that time, may we be active agents to bring people to Jesus Christ's throne. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So we are starting a series about Moses. Moses is a huge part of why we are here. The Torah, the first five books, you know, the, what we call the law, is the foundation of what led to the Jewish nation than the Christian nation. So we are going to start this series on Moses. Now, before we get there, I want to I bring up some names. So we're at the, we're at the third slide, actually. I want to bring up some names, and I want you to recognize, I don't want you to recognize out loud, but I want you to sort of recognize that you might have thoughts or feelings towards these names. They might be positive, they might be negative. The first one is Mark Felt. Does anybody remember the name Mark Felt? It was W. Mark Felt. What did he, he was a whistleblower. What event in our nation's history did he blow that whistle on? What, what scandal in our history? Water, what? Watergate. The Watergate scandal. He was, yeah, that's what it was called. And he was, he was connecting President Nixon to the breaking in of the Watergate. Now, some people have positive feelings towards that, some people negative. Let me do a more contemporary name. Edward Snowden. Does, do you remember the name Edward Snowden? Um, who did he work for? Who is he a contractor for? The, not the CIA, the NSA. So he was, and they, what he was claiming, he was a whistleblower that was claiming that the government was gathering information on its private citizens, whether or not they were considered terrorist uh, threats. Okay, let's see if you remember this one. This is also a contemporary one. Harry... Mark, uh, Markopoulos, Harry Markopoulos. He wasn't as, his name wasn't out there as much as Edward Snowden. Does anybody know? Can anybody remember? He was a security director that worked for, if you remember this name, a guy named Bernie Madoff. 
And he was, the, he was sort of the whistleblower that was saying, I think there's fraud going on, on with this, and I believe it's a Ponzi scheme. And so he was the whistleblower on the Madoff situation. Good feelings, bad feelings. How about this name? Does anybody remember the name Linda Tripp? Linda Tripp. This is about 20 years ago. Who, who, who was associated with this scandal that she was the whistleblower? What was it? Bill Clinton and who? Who was the counterpart? Monica Lewinsky. And she was the one that testified that there's something that basically Monica Lewinsky was perjuring herself and so was the president that nothing happened. The final one is also fairly contemporary. It's a guy named Bradley Manning. Does anybody remember Bradley Manning? He also changed his name to Chelsea. Um, Bradley Manning was the army private that basically took some classified military documents and gave it to WikiLeaks. Do you guys remember that? Just, this was just a few years ago. Whistleblowing is now part of our society. And some of you feel good about it. Some of you do not feel positive about it. Harvard Law School has actually... Part, put part of their ethics, like a, a whole component of their ethics is based on whistleblowing, on protecting whistleblowers. I don't know if you guys know this, well, I have that up there, the Whistleblower, Whistleblower Protection Act. In 1989, there was an act that was established. It's a U.S. federal law that protects federal whistleblowers who work for the government and report agency misconduct. A federal agency violates the Whistleblower Protection Act if agency authorities take retaliatory personnel action against any employee or applicant because of disclosure of information by the employee or applicant. So anything that would, would basic, basically retaliate, either firing or something like that, they, these whistleblowers are protected. But they still have been seen not to be protected. So there, there are actually law schools that are teaching how to protect whistleblowers. Again, some of us, those names we didn't like. Some of them maybe you do like. But let me say this. From their perspective, there were two things. There was somebody more powerful that was exploiting their power. Now, whether we agree with it or not, whether it's government or business or or whatever, or a president of the United States, these people were convicted that exploitation was happening by a more powerful being. And whether you agree with their actions or not, they were putting their neck on the line to let the people know something bad is happening. So we get to the point of Moses. And when you go to Exodus chapter 1, and Exodus chapter 1 and part of chapter 2 is somewhat about this. About people risking their lives to save others. 
And we're going to skip a couple of the, the, the first couple verses. And, and it's up here. But we're going to start with verse 5. Because you know the tribes of, of Israel. That's how it introduces it. Sort of a continuation from Genesis chapter 50. And it says this. The descendants of Jacob numbered how many? Seventy in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and his, all his brothers and all the generations that, wait, and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. Increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom jo- Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Now, in many of your translations, it actually says that he didn't know Joseph. Did, did you read that? In your, if you have your sword before you, it probably says something that he didn't know Joseph. Now, I don't believe that. And actually, Patriarchs and Prophets doesn't, says that it's the opposite, too. That, that he knew who Joseph was. If you think about, Joseph was the national hero. Egypt would no longer exist if Joseph wasn't around. So this is sort of like saying, well, the new president came along and he didn't know who Abraham Lincoln was. That's ridiculous. He knew who Joseph was. But he was tired of the Israelites, and the only way he could eliminate the Israelites is to eliminate the history of these people, which Joseph is center. I don't know if you know this, but this happens nowadays. Do you know that there are history books out there that are discrediting the Holocaust? I, I actually just read an article of, there were 1,300 millennials, and I don't mean to pick on millennials, Sorry, but you are going to get picked on a little bit. They interviewed 1,300 millennials, and two-thirds, almost exactly two-thirds of them didn't know what Auschwitz was. They had no clue. I don't know what Auschwitz is. History can be erased or manipulated, and this pharaoh wanted to do it. Now, he says to the people, now I want you to, to catch that I said he says to the people, they are too many and they're too mighty. Um, the words are rav va'atsum. Rav, I'm not going to ask you to repeat that. Rav va'atsum. Rav means that they are growing in rank or in number to a point that's uncontrollable. And va'atsum, atsum means that they're getting too mighty. Actually, as a noun, it actually means they are bone or the limbs. They're the powerful part of the nation. He was actually saying, Egypt is not powerful anymore. Our blood is not powerful. They are more powerful than us. Well, obviously, that would shake some fear into people. If we say this, they're more powerful than us. And they're foreigners. But I don't think that's 
really the problem with Pharaoh. He says they're becoming more powerful, but this is the problem. The next slide says they are distinctly different. The problem is that they're different. They were still keeping different customs, and they were still doing different things, and there is fear and difference. Do you agree? I know a retired military service person, and he, he recounted to me how right after 9-11, when he, the first time he had gotten on a plane after 9-11, and he had seen a group of guys walk on that had Middle Eastern garb. Now, 9-11 was just months ago. He said, whether I was right or wrong at this, my initial feeling was fear. What are these guys going to do? And they're distinctly different here. He said, actually, I was relieved because they ordered alcohol. And he said, well, I know that they're not really devout because they're, they're ordering alcohol on a plane. So they weren't quite as different. But we fear difference. Actually, if you read some of the accounts of even just Seventh-day Adventists during World War II in Nazi Germany, the Nazis felt that Adventists that would not join the Nazi party because they felt convicted, because of their beliefs, they would call them Jews or Jew lovers. They were so close because they were Sabbath keepers and they did not, because they were different than what the general public was believing, fear was put within, these, within the people. Oh, these Adventists, they're basically Jews. This is what's happening here. These people are different, and he's exploiting it. Now, I don't know if you know this, but it is believed also that the Jews were getting a tax break. Did you know this? The Jews were getting a tax break. So Joseph comes in, and if you remember the story of Joseph, Joseph says, okay, sell all you have, pay for grain. Do you remember? There was a famine. Pay for grain. We have grain left over during this famine. Pay for grain, pay for grain. To the Egyptians and to the people that would come foreign. But then he said, you don't have any more of that? Sell your land. And then actually become servants. And you can pay for the grain and you can pay it off with your servitude. This did not happen to the Jews that came in. They came in and they actually got Egyptian land because of Joseph. They didn't have to pay the same taxes. They were not servants of Egypt until this moment. So here is this Pharaoh, and I'm just, I, I am adding a little bit to the text, but, but this is supported also by Patriarchs and patriarchs and prophets and, and other sources out there. I'm thinking that the Pharaoh said, we are breaking our backs and the foreigners have it better than we do. 
they're growing and, and I'm not, and, and my kingdom's not growing because we can't tax them. So let's just do what's right for our nation. Let's do what's right. So he started making them into servants. Here it says in Exodus chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. That's a, that's a front, okay? He wasn't really, I, I don't believe he was concerned about that. He just wanted to make his nation great. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses and store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Have you noticed this? Growth usually happens through persecution. I know we're afraid of that. I'm telling you. It, it's not something that I readily, oh, bring it on. Bring on the persecution. But they seem to work hand in hand. That if growth is going to happen, persecution will happen. And it's cyclical. The way that, that some authors have said this is that the blood of martyrs has watered the seed of the gospel. Persecution is inevitable if we're to grow. If you're ready to die as a church, as a movement, then we can avoid persecution. But if we're going to grow, persecution will come. To the next text, starting in verse 15, it says this, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, you can let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live, then the... Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let your, the boys live? Now, I do love this answer. The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Now, watch what God does. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. There is an elephant sometimes in the room when this text is read. It is clear that deception happened. I know that sometimes we like to skirt around this, but they at least deceived. I'm not going to say that they lied. They might have gone to the letter of the law and said, okay, we're going to walk a little bit slower to this house because we know that they're having a baby. 
so that we don't have to lie about it. But no matter what, for example, there were missionary friends of mine when I was through 1000 Missionary Movement. There was a time where you, and I don't know if it still exists, that you could only bring one Bible into China, your own personal Bible. If you were going there for whatever reason and you were not supposed to go as a missionary, even though you knew in your head you were a missionary, but you were going to go under some kind of work visa or teaching visa, but you were going as a missionary, but you weren't going to say you were a missionary, and you were supposed to only bring one Bible. That was the law. But people would hide Bibles and wrap it around their clothing or wrap their clothing around the Bible to sneak it in. And when some of them, when they would say they'd have to claim what they wrote, they wouldn't claim all those Bibles. But they were doing it for the kingdom. If you ever read the story of Corey Ten Boom, and I do believe that the Lord blessed her home as a Christian believer because she hid people to save their lives. Sometimes we as Christians do not understand the pecking order of what are important principles. The primary principle is life. Life is the primary principle, period. And God actually, because these midwives thought life more important than anything else, he blesses them. Now, I am not advocating that we are deceptive and that we lie. What I'm saying, though, is that in this situation, God blesses a people that count life as most valuable. And they knew that their lives were at risk. So the name of these two women, at least from the text, it says their names are Shifra and Pua. Which a, what's a cool, you know, what a cool name, Pua. It's almost just pua. So shifra means to increase, and pua means to coo, sort of a baby call, to coo. Now here's the cool thing, and, and you won't find this in the text, and you won't find this in patriarchs and prophets either, but there are quite a bit of Jewish writings that suggest that we know who these two women are. That these two women are actually Jacobed, and Miriam. And if you read the context, I see it. it. They're not just pulling names out of a hat. Watch this. It says in verse 21, and because the midwives feared God and gave, oh wait, feared God, he gave them families of their own. The Pharaoh gave the order to all his people, every boy that is born must be thrown into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now, there is a man of the house of Levi, married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. She had no family, or 
Her family wasn't really part. Now it's growing. Her family is growing. It's following the context. This is potentially Jochebed herself who saved many of those lives. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put among the reeds along put it among the reeds on the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent her slave girl to it to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Now, there's been some heroes in here. The first hero is Joseph, but he's sort of, they're trying to eliminate him. The second hero is the midwives, who were saving lives at the risk of their own. Now, another hero emerges here. Well, I, I, we'll, we'll say Jacobet is also a hero in this, because in this, she knew that that was at risk, but that's her own child. But Pharaoh's daughter is a hero here. I want you to think about this. Pharaoh, her father, has made a command. All Hebrew male boys thrown into the Nile. I wonder if she does not disagree with her dad. I disagree with this. And because my heart has compassion on this Hebrew boy that I am going to bring into Pharaoh's household. By the way, there was fear on that too. Because there are several writings, even implied in Mrs. White's writings, that imply that people on both sides knew that a deliverer was coming out of the Hebrew nation. The Hebrews knew it. And the Egyptian astrologers knew it. It was prophesied about. And she says, I don't care. I'm bringing this Hebrew boy to the house. She becomes a hero. At the risk of who she is. At the risk of the nation, she says, I don't care. I'm saving this life. And she says this. She says, I'm going to call him Moses because we have drawn him out of the water. Now, some people believe that this comes from the Hebrew words, uh, mo means water, or the Egyptian words, and uses means to save from. But the word masha, where we get the name Moshe, 
I believe, comes from Hebrew origins. And it's used in several texts, meaning to draw out. But it can mean he was drawn out, or it can mean he will draw out. Because it was prophetic. His name was prophetic. He was drawn out to draw out. He would be the one who would draw the people out of Egypt. Now, my challenge is to you. How many of you believe you are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ? I do want to see your hands. How many of you believe that you are saved alone by the grace that comes from Jesus Christ? If you are drawn out, you are called to draw out. If you are saved, if your life is preserved, there are people out there that need Jesus. You have a purpose. Moses found out he had a purpose. He was drawn out to draw out. That is your calling, to draw people out and save lives. At this time, as you know, as you can see here, it is a special, it's a special Sabbath. We have communion Sabbath. Now, what we are going to do for communion Sabbath, Sabbath is we are going to first, so that kiddos know what they're doing, we're going to have a children's story for the kids. So you will stay here in the sanctuary. And who are my children's story people, right? Nick and Alex, those are my children's story people. They're going to stay here and they are going to show you Jesus. For the rest of us, this is how it's going to go. If you are a couple, we will meet in the fellowship hall. Men, I believe, is in Miss Williams' room. Am I correct? Men meet in Miss Williams' room. And women in the kindergarten. Oh, do we have it up there? All right. Couples, fellowship hall. Ladies in the primary school room. And men, in, oh, okay, in the cradle room. Oh, this has changed a little bit. And then handicapped are in the mother's room. So right back there. So refer to that. Don't refer to me. At this time, we will be dismissed. What we do ask is that when you do come back up for the second portion of the communion, that we do it in alternating rows so that people can, so that the deacons can fit in there and serve you the emblems. Happy Sabbath and... Uh, We'll see you soon.